This episode is brought to you in part by The Good Book Company, publisher of Does the Bible Affirm Same-Sex Relationships? by Rebecca McLaughlin, a book that examines 10 claims about the Bible's view of sexuality. Go to thegoodbook.com slash sexualethics to receive 25% off with code CT25. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table, where we discuss issues involving God and culture. And our topic today is one which is um, something a lot of people don't know a lot about, human trafficking. And so I have brought in three guests to discuss this with us. I have uh, to my right Barry Jones, who is uh, responsible for spiritual formation here on campus and chairs the department that uh, is responsible for spiritual formation. Barry's office happens to be right next door to mine here on campus. His wife, Kim. Jones, who is here with us, who's worked in uh, a ministry that's involved with human trafficking, you'll be hearing more about. And then Matt Williams, who is uh, with us by, via Skype from Tennessee, where he is involved in a ministry that, uh, that is very engaged with activity uh, on the continent of Africa. So uh, I think to begin, I'll just let each of you tell your story about how you're involved with human trafficking and, and how you came to be involved with it. Matt, I'll let you start us off. How, tell us a little bit about the organization you work with and tell us how you got involved in this topic. Okay, great. Uh, I work for an organization called Exile International. Uh, we provide rehabilitation to former child soldiers and war-affected kids in northern Uganda and eastern Congo. Um, these war-affected kids are not just former child soldiers, but the girls are often trafficked as sex slaves as well. Um, yeah, that's the short version. You want a longer one? So yeah, how did you get into how did you get into this? I mean, it, it doesn't sound like I mean, you, you're a seminary grad. Most seminary grads end up in a church. So how did you end up out there in Tennessee, connected to Africa? Gotcha. Uh, well, I was a seminary grad in the counseling program. Uh, early on in the counseling program, I visited Uganda after a documentary about child soldiers. And after seeing the need firsthand of the former child soldiers and rehabilitation needs from post-traumatic stress, I knew that that's where I was going to use um, my training. Uh, so I started honing the rest of the program towards understanding trauma, understanding uh, sexual abuse, and any other type of trauma that there was any research out there on. And after graduating from DTS, just a, a mutual friend connection landed me with Exile. I looked on their webpage, read their mission statement, and it was kind of the, the mission statement of my life. Uh, I knew I had to get connected, so I began bombarding their executive director until she would finally meet with me. <laughs> Eventually got a 15-minute meeting, which turned into an hour and a half, the, them saying they were praying for a male therapist to come alongside them, and I was praying to find them. So it was a perfect fit. Oh, great. And how long have you been with them now? Oh, right about 15 months. Oh, wow. That's great. And you like you told me you'd spent four months out of last year in Africa itself. Is that right? Yeah, four yeah. months out of last year working alongside our partners there. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, well, we'll hear more details in a, in a moment. Kim, why don't you talk about how you got involved in this area? Um, well, for me, I'm... First of all, I'm a stay-at-home mom. Mm -hmm. I homeschool my kids. Uh -huh. So I'm sort of um, 
the person who you would think is least likely to get involved in this kind of issue. Mm -hmm. But for me, I guess it was about six years ago, um, Ashley Judd was interviewing Madeleine Albright. Mm. And in that interview, she basically said two words that I'd never heard of before. And those were human trafficking. And it just caught my imagination, caught my mind. And afterwards, I thought, you know, I, I need to find out more about this. Started looking into it and just researching. Went all over the Internet. Um, and to be honest with you, at first, I mean, it was really – it was it was overwhelming to me. Because, mm -hmm. again, I'm a mom. I homeschool my kids. And what kind of response can I give? Mm -hmm. What – this is this is too great for me. This is too big for me. Um, and to be honest with you, I actually put it away and just said I can't do anything. And uh, but then God, I think, just kept pursuing me, and just, it kept coming back up again and again and again. And one organization in particular that kept coming uh, to the forefront for me was Love One Forty Six. Um, and it's an organization that started their work primarily in Southeast Asia, um, specifically um, doing aftercare in uh, the Philippines. And so from there, have just volunteered with them, uh, recently was in Southeast Asia, and um, have just, God has just given me a heart and has opened a lot of doors for me um, in terms of giving awareness and um, just a lot of different opportunities, opportunities that I thought I would never have. Interesting. Yeah. And Barry, what's, how's your, connect, what's your connection? So honestly, you're along for the yeah, ride. In a, in a lot of ways, I am. Um, you know, my my academic academic work is in spiritual formation, and I, for a long time, really have felt strongly about the idea that um, our becoming engaged in the the needs of the world, responding to issues of 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 justice and caring for the marginalized is part of our becoming like Jesus. Um, but it was really my wife that brought me to a greater awareness of this particular issue and how those things are connected. In addition to the work that I do here at the seminary, I'm also a teaching pastor at Irving Bible Church, which is a, a very missional, globally-minded church. And so through the connection then that Kim and I have there, we've been able to see IBC um, connect with Love 146 and be involved in some of the initiatives that they're doing, uh, both internationally and domestically, some of the cool things that are going on here. And so in a lot of ways, I have been along for the ride, but the more that I've learned really through Kim, the more passionate about this particular issue I think I've become as well. Yeah, my, uh, my path to discovery of this topic goes back to uh, a global meeting tied to Lausanne mm -hmm. that I attended in Thailand. Mm -hmm. And we went to uh, a seminar, and I was expecting the normal mission seminar on, you know, here's what the church does and here's what the church is doing in Thailand. And lo and behold, one of the key ministries that, was, uh, that we were presented was uh, an outreach that the church was doing in relationship to human trafficking, rescuing uh, girls from that situation, uh, and and in the midst of it, they quoted a whole series of statistics and things that showed how pervasive this was in certain parts of the uh, certain parts of Asia, and it was like. Uh, you know, two things. It was two things coming together that I mm. I ne had never thought about connecting mm -hmm. uh, and being connected and being related to one another. And uh, you mentioned the spiritual formation dimension, which I think is important. Uh, I liked when I 
teach about Jesus and the Gospels talk about how Jesus presents the word of the message of the Gospel, and then he immediately goes out and ministers mm-hmm. in such a way that reinforces it so that there's a combination mm-hmm. of word and service that come together that you see side by side. Luke 4 is probably the best illustration of this. You see him preaching in the synagogue about release to the captives mm-hmm. and that kind mm-hmm. of thing. He's dealing with his outreach, particularly to the marginalized. And then in the very next scene, he's in Capernaum and he's healing people who are on the edge and on the fringe. Mm-hmm. The society has forgotten about that kind of thing. And so, so this kind of audiovisual support for what the gospel is fundamentally about is very, very important dimension of, of the total equation. And so when I encountered this in Thailand, I thought to myself, well, you know, I may not have brought these two things together, but they really it really does fit. There is something that, that belongs here, uh, belongs together. Let's talk a little bit about, about human trafficking. Uh, Matt, I'm going to ask you, uh, since you're involved directly in a ministry, um, talk a little bit about the kinds of human trafficking. What exactly are we talking about? There might be some people listening to this who've never even heard the phrase, so they have even no idea what we're talking about. So why don't you help us get our hands around what it is that we're, we're considering? I think um, starting with one statistic uh, will help you start getting your mind around it. Um, about 27 million slaves are alive today. Um, and then the FBI estimates uh, about 2 million more are trafficked each year. Um, and this slavery, a lot of times, um, is human trafficking is multiple categories of sex trafficking, girls who are trafficked for the purposes of sexual exploitation. Um, about 70% of girls involved in prostitution um, are pimped out. Um, I don't know that there's a more uh, oh, a delicate way to say it. Yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah. Um, that's just coming from some statistics put together by Half the Sky um, and Half the Sky Movement. And any any version of that is sex trafficking. Um, they are there not of their own free will. Um, and there's no real easy way out. And I think there, that's the church has a unique opportunity to help provide uh, a provide a way out um, for a woman who all all she has ever known is um, is sexual exploitation. That's um, abducted as a young child and forced to commit acts um, that leave you with heavy marks of shame and guilt. Um, and then to maybe even have a child and not be able to take care of that child without this means of income, or if uh, I guess if you're lucky enough to have income uh, from it. But then moving on, um, also there is um, forced labor, uh, which is a, a huge problem across the world. That 27 million encompasses that as well. Um, and then on, on my side as well with uh, child soldiering would also be forced against your will to be a part of um, that's forced labor. So, so we've got three categories that you've mentioned. One is, are girls who oftentimes are just abducted or caught off the street, and I take it they're young, teenage, or even pre-teenage oftentimes. Is that right? Um, yeah, go ahead. Kim. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it, it depends. There's uh-huh. a variety. I mean, you find that gangs are actually involved in it now. <laughs> um, it's sometimes found with families as well. Um, You have mothers selling their daughters because perhaps uh, they can't pay the rent or they need to pay for their drugs. And so uh, in order to get their drugs, they sell their child. Or 
um, you've got grandparents that are doing it as well. So you have it's it's not necessarily the idea of just going out and and uh, and taking a child, which that it, that inevitably does happen. Mm-hmm. But you see it in a variety of ways. And uh, one of the the statistics that I found to be quite alarming when I first got involved was that the average age of entrance into prostitution is 13. Mm. And so, um, for example, there's an organization here in Dallas called New Friends New Life that works with women exiting the sex industry. And inevitably, when they talk with these women, you will find that their stories point back to around this age and that they had been exploited. And so um, so I, I think in some ways, when we think about the word prostitution, when we think about things that go along with that, we have to change the way that we think, that it's not a choice, that inevitably it was something that had been done to them, exploited at such a young age, Mm. that becomes a cycle that they, quite frankly, it's very difficult to break. I I think it's also important to note, um, Kim has been to Southeast Asia, uh, three different countries there, and seen just the the horror of this mm-hmm. on the streets there. Uh, Mark has seen how this has impact on the continent of Africa. It is a, a huge problem internationally, but we also have to wrestle with the reality that it's also very much a domestic problem. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't that long ago that there was a, a police sting operation that took place at a hotel that it's five minutes away from where Kim and I live. Mm-hmm. And uh, they just set up an operation there where they called a number that they found off of the internet um, to solicit prostitute. They called the first number, a woman showed up, they arrested her. Second number, a woman showed up, they arrested her. Third call that they made, completely unintentionally, a woman showed up with a 15-year-old girl. and uh, they had to shut down the operation because suddenly they were confronted with something they were unprepared for. The other stories that have, uh, of things that have happened right down the street from, from us, literally. Um, I passed her at a church in Irving, and there was a situation not long ago where a little girl was um, picked up, 13-year-old girl picked up from a, a basketball, basketball game, game mm-hmm. by a couple of guys that were going to take her to get a tattoo. Mm-hmm. And she was gone for 10 days held against her will and forced into yeah, – um, She was sold yeah. again and again and again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I, I think that's one of the things that has been so alarming to learn is that this isn't just something that happens internationally, though it is rampant and we have a responsibility to be aware of and respond to that. But it's also something that's happening here domestically as well. Yeah, it was surprising in, in preparation for this last night. I sat down, you know, do what anyone does is getting oriented. I just went and Googled. Human trafficking, and what was interesting was the subbar, uh, a sidebar on the bottom. You know, when you sometimes Google, you, you get the subtopics, and it was human trafficking in Dallas, human trafficking mm-hmm. in Texas, all little sub areas. And so I hit, I clicked on the Dallas one just to see what was happening mm-hmm. locally. And there have been uh, periodic stories over the last year about mm-hmm. the situation here in Dallas, because uh, I do think that a lot of people tend to think, oh, that happens elsewhere, it yeah. happens overseas, but it isn't going on in the States. Okay, that's one kind. That's the that's the human trafficking involving sexuality. Let's We have two other categories we kind of have to overview. Um, but, you know, before I do that, Matt, do you have anything you want to add to what we've said about, about – uh, about the sexual human trafficking issue? No, I think Kim and Barry did a great job giving you an overview there. Okay, yeah. great. Okay, let's let's go to force to the forced labor. What exactly does that involve? Um, because that 
that may be a little more of an ambiguous category. Uh, I've read stuff because I'm not directly involved with this, but I've read stuff that says sometimes it involves um, the way in which people are allowed to immigrate from what uh, into a country, that kind of a thing. So, um, so what does forced labor involve, Matt? Um, wow, what does it involve? Um, it involves someone being forced to work against their own will. Uh, perhaps they're not being paid or they're being uh, underpaid. Um, there's indentured servitudes where um, someone is offered an opportunity to come to the United States, but hey, you're going you're gonna to work off your debt. Uh, yeah, but when you get here, I'm going to provide you with a place to stay and your meals, and I'm going to charge you more than you're actually making. So you become eternally indebted to this person. Hmm. Uh, so it is forced labor. Um, so that's another means in which people are trafficked. But even locally, whether that's within the United States or within communities um, outside of the United States, uh, where men, women, and children um, are forced to work in, in camp situations or in warehouse situations where um, it's sun up to sunset, work, sleep, work. And there's no foreseeable way out. And I've, I've been even seen descriptions of of these warehouses and camps situations where you're brought to a location, you're literally not allowed to leave. I mean, you you are basically um, you're basically there, and 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 what and the grip that keeps someone there is is that uh, it is they they are given very very basic levels of uh, of, of sustenance, but that's it. And uh, so. Um, or, or there's the threat of yeah. death. Yeah. Um, not only your own death, but then the threat of we'll harm your family, mm -hmm. we'll take your children, and you know, so help yeah. us. Or yeah. even if they've they've taken the children, then they they threaten the children that will kill your parents. Mm -hmm. uh, you see that in um, in Africa where uh, you see the harvesting of the cocoa beans. Mm -hmm. um, uh, chocolate's a big issue right now in terms of. Of, of child slavery um, hmm. there, and we have a lot of large companies throughout the world that really are not, are kind of looking away at where they're getting their beans from and how they're being harvested, and um, and these things are happening um, there. They they are getting the children, they're coerced. They say, you know, hey, we want to provide you a better life. Hey, come on with me. And and when you're in a in a situation where your village is struggling, um, whatever it means. I mean, it, it could be in Africa, or it could even be here in the U.S. There's a there's a a struggle for survival mm -hmm. and um, coercion, and people can be convinced to do things when when they they're barely getting by. Right, and so then they find themselves in these situations. A lot of children find themselves in these situations being treated in horrible ways, um, never being able to be released. Uh, you know, they're always told you can work this off, but eventually they they're not. Um, but even here in the United States, I think there's some. Um, Things that we don't even realize as well is that um, the service industry, people that are serving us in um, in our restaurants or um, our dry cleaners or perhaps the the girls who are doing our nails, mm -hmm. pedicures, manicures, mm -hmm. um, the the things that we need to be 
um, open and uh, to is be being aware of who it is that are is in our lives. Questioning, um, you find people that um, if you if you're in situations like that and they don't have freedom to move about, or perhaps their identification is kept, they they don't have the ability to get a license, or mm-hmm. they don't have. So you've got some you've got some signs, you've got some things that are pointing to questionable things that are happening and. Uh, I don't know if that helps. <laughs> yeah, I, I, there was one site I looked at last night. It was actually a piece written by a lawyer here in the United States talking about how difficult it is in some cases to to discover mm-hmm. that in fact human trafficking is going on. And and it was a, it it was a piece written to suggest some things to look for and how to how to I'd recognize that it might be going on. And he and this this is a local lawyer. This is you know uh, he's talking about local situations. Uh, this episode is brought to you by the Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. Um, Barry, you have anything you want to add? No, on? I, uh, I I thought of a story that uh, David Batstone tells in his book Not for Sales, a, a, a great Christian perspective on this whole subject. Um, and he tells a story about being in a restaurant and just noticing some things that seemed a little out of sorts with regard to some of the, uh, the folks that were working there. And through a process of discovery, coming to find out that indeed these were people who were really um, – they had been promised opportunity if they came and then um, – essentially coerced to stay and serve, uh, kind of trying to pay off this debt that they could never get out from under. And so again, it, it really is a matter of having open eyes to see, take notice of what's going on all around us. Okay, now the third area that, that we've raised is what you call force soldiering, Matt, and this is one that I know you're directly, very directly involved with in Africa. Uh, let's talk about that area, What what and, and, what, and that involves uh, children of all kinds of ages, doesn't it? Yeah, all ages. Um, I mean, we've seen children as young as four abducted, though at that age, uh, that's not the most common. Uh, but the target age is around um, seven to 14 years old, um, because at that age, they're old enough to carry a weapon, um, but they're young enough to be molded, shaped, and brainwashed. Um, and oftentimes, these children are forced to commit um, terrible acts when they're first abducted. Uh, so that they're not able to return to their communities, so that they're not able to return to their families. And in some of the worst cases, some of them are even forced to kill their own family members when they are first abducted. Um, so now, not only will their community not welcome them, but they have no family to run, run away to. Hmm. Um, so, but this is a really common practice um, in many countries in Africa. We work just in Uganda and DR Congo. 
um, but it's very prevalent, very well documented. There's organizations working in multiple com- countries, um, Sierra Leone, just one of many, uh, where this is also a major issue. Um, I don't have that statistic in front of me, but I want to say um, it's around 200,000 is the estimated number of child soldiers currently uh, being utilized in in Africa as a continent. Um, this is not the only continent this is happening. It's happening other places in the world as well. Um, and even the Congolese government themselves uh, were officially using child soldiers until 2008 and 2009 when they began their own uh, disarmament uh, program, supposedly. But, well, I won't get into politics. Yeah. Well, I actually was going to take you there next. Now, this is something – is this something the United Nations is involved in or, 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 or not? Yeah, we actually have a little bit of involvement with them um, in Congo. Um, I think they could be doing a bit more for uh-huh. sure. Um, they do. They are helping get a lot of kids out. Since the a recent, it was about a year, year and a half ago, a man named Thomas Lubanga was tried and convicted by the International Criminal Court. He's the first man convicted of child soldiering by the International Criminal Court. And after that, um, the, the UN, at least in Congo, has struck up a deal with some of the rebel leaders where as long as they'll give give um, give over any of the children under 18, um, they won't, I guess, prosecute them or pursue them as heavily. Um, so a lot of children have actually been released in the last uh, two to three years there, about uh, 40,000 officially. That just means that they've gone through some official channels as in the UN, um, but there's many others who haven't actually gone through those channels. Um, but where the gap is, is really rehabilitation. And what do you do with these kids after you're, you are able to um, remove them from the rebel groups? Um, where do they go? They have no community, no home to go to. Um, yeah. And so the the difficulty here is is that we've got this situation going on. It's clear that it's exploitation of other human beings. I can't think of something more fundamentally a violation of the great commandment than what we're discussing in many ways. And and yet um, the the problem is um, these people feel very trapped. There's a, they have the sense there's no place to go. There's no way out. And um, and so the next logical question is: All right, so where then does the ministry come in? Where does what what uh, what is what is or what could be can be the responses to this situation going on? What what kind of ministries exist, and what how do they help? Matt. Okay, wasn't sure that was for me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's there's a few key areas where there are need. Um, oh, first, I would say is prevention. Um, what can we do to make the world aware, make individuals aware, not only aware, but then also to take action. Um, prevention, protection, um, protection so that it cannot happen to children. Uh, what, what steps or what policies, what procedures need to be in place so that children are protected. Uh, prosecution is a, is a key element. Um, International Justice Mission does a phenomenal job all across the world. Um, and that is one of their key focuses is prosecution um, so that there is a deterrent. Uh, so many countries, there is no deterrent. Um, I spent some time in Cambodia working with a, um, a rehabilitation center there run by a Somali mom. Um, and one issue that they run into is that many of these traffickers or these gangs and these rings um, have the cooperation of the government. There, there are local police there who have no motivation um, to do anything about it. And they often have motivation to um, assist the crimes. 
Um, and then also, finally, the last category would be reintegration. So how do you reintegrate these children and these women back into society? Okay. And so what is it that your ministry does there in Africa? Our primary focus is uh, re, uh, rehabilitation, uh, re- rehabilitation and reintegration. Uh, for example, most children, after they are released from a rebel group, um, they're not wanted within any community. Um, they're not welcomed back into school or, or anything, really. Our they are totally parents, orphaned, in they fact. Are totally orphaned, yes, yeah. whether or not they actually have family. Um, so it's our goal to provide rehabilitation uh, so they can get back on their feet and also a launching pad. Uh, recently, when I was there in this last trip about two months ago, I was able to visit with the headmasters of their schools. And he was able to explain to me how they typically do not welcome former child soldiers into their school. Um, they cause problems. I mean, if you think, bring it into the context that more of us are familiar with, with gangs. If a child had been in a gang uh, from adolescence or an early teen, and all of a sudden he was released, um, he's only known a few ways to get what he wanted. And most of, most of those were not the most pure ways to get what you wanted. So many times it was by gunpoint or by theft. So, understandably so, these headmasters don't want these children in their schools, but um, he was able to explain that these children that are now going through the rehabilitation programs that we have, they're the leaders at the school. They, they're the ones he can count on to actually um, take care of their business. Um, so it's awesome to be able to hear those stories and know that rehabilitation is possible, um, but someone has to help, someone has to provide that, that rehabilitation place and then a launching pad for them to be empowered to hopefully become leaders. Because those kids that have survived, there's a reason they survived. Many of them die, but those that have survived have um, a tenacity and a strength that they have the capability to become leaders. Um, so we're hoping, uh, we're praying, and we're actively pursuing, um, restoring them and empowering them to do so. And Kim, what have you seen in the ministry that you've been involved with in um, terms of yeah, what can be done? Yeah, Love 146 specifically, well, they first started in the area of aftercare. Mm-hmm. And uh, what they actually went to Southeast Asia to do was sort of on a um, a fact-finding mission, if you will. And while they were there, um, I, and I believe they went with International Justice Mission. I believe they were there with them, and they were there in an undercover operation. And while they were there, um, they they saw little girls that were standing behind glass windows. And uh, they were in these individual little rooms that had little TVs that they were sitting. and and. They're like four, five, six, seven, eight-year-old girls wearing little red dresses, watching cartoons, and um, seemingly just so innocent. And um, all of them wore numbers. And those numbers basically were for the men to identify which one they wanted. Hmm. And so when you figured out which one you wanted, you basically gave the number and they would provide you with that child. Um, But there was one child in particular, and her number was 146, that still had this sort of look in her eye like, I'm not giving up, that tenacity, that thing Hmm. that that I think that he spoke about was, you know what? this is not going to, to take me down. This is not going to get me. And it was for her that the program 
that the organization Level 146 was begun. And uh, what they recognized was that once these girls were rescued, once an organization like IJM went in, there needed to be an aftercare. Mm -hmm. There needed to be a place where um, these girls primarily, um, little girls, teenagers, preteens, could go and be rehabilitated in a holistic way, um, spiritual, um, education, providing for basic needs. Um, and uh, and so they started the Roundhouse, which is in the Philippines. And um, there is a woman by the name of Gundalina Velasco. I believe that's how her last name is pronounced. Um, and she is fantastic. She's like a Mother Teresa. Hmm. She has gone in and, um, like I said, I was in Southeast Asia, um, went to multiple different countries and got to go to the Roundhouse in the Philippines and met the girls there in the Roundhouse. And absolutely, it was the most wonderful experience I'd ever had. Mm. And it was just neat to see how God transformed these girls' lives. Girls that um, had been so broken down and, and quite frankly, um, the world around them didn't want them. Mm -hmm. And the shame that they were, they were struggling with. And Gundalina has created this program that now she has been training other people, other organizations throughout the world. Um, they have had an excellent success rate in terms of reintegration um, after they go through the program. They um, have now actually just received, I believe, six little girls um, that uh, have been exploited, have been um, trafficked, and it's been neat to watch. And while I was there, um, they had sort of this this thing called the round table, uh, which they mm -hmm. it's kind of like a soup kitchen, if you will, for exploited children that they find on the street, and they come in and they just fill their bellies. And but the girls from the roundhouse come. And it's sort of that wounded healer type of thing, and it's so beautiful to watch them do that. So there's aftercare that is definitely needed, but then one of the other areas that I've seen that is huge is also prevention. Um, here in the U.S., they're doing prevention programs in Cambodia as well, uh, working with the military, going in and basically teaching them um, even about abuse, starting at that place, abuse within the family, but then beyond that, um, the exploitation of women in general. Um, and then here in the U.S., prevention in terms of kids, going into the high schools, middle schools, and really talking about what does what is pimping? What is basic terminology, street terminology that kids are talking about, that it's in the music, it's in their everyday lives, and really sort of pointing to things that say, hey, this is not okay. Trying to help rewire what perhaps the culture has um, has told them to be true. So prevention, aftercare are the two areas um, that that I have worked uh, worked in, and then also, of course, awareness. Really, um, a program like this, just bringing that awareness is the first step in um, in making advances in change in this problem. Mm -hmm. Awareness is a huge thing. I, I remember the night that Kim and I met Rob Morris, who was one of the founders and now the president of Love 146, and having this conversation with Rob, um, he said, you know, the work that we have done has been like a triage at the bottom of a cliff, right? Mm -hmm. These kids that have fallen off the cliff mm -hmm. and uh, and they pick them up and bandage them. They're, they help be a part of this healing and restoration rehabilitation process. But he said, what I really want us to be about is actually getting up to the top of the cliff 
and seeing that they don't fall off to begin with. What mm-hmm. can we do to actually to, to rescue them on the front end? Mm-hmm. And uh, they're doing some great work. And so that's one of the things that, you know, as a pastor, we've tried to bring awareness to this issue with our congregation. And oftentimes what happens is people become so disturbed that they, they want to do something. And I remember talking to a woman. We had a, a Sunday that we dedicated to this issue, and I preached and, and talked a lot about it. And a woman came to me afterwards, and she was ready to go kick down the door of a brothel, right? <laughs> and yet the, the, the fact of the matter is is that most of us can't be involved in that direct work of intervention like mm-hmm. what organizations like IJM are a part of. But we can be involved in bringing awareness to this issue and then a a sense of holistic prevention. So um, the work that we do when we're involved in our our church sending mentors into local schools Mm -hmm. and working with at-risk kids. Um, Being involved, we have uh, an organization that we work with here locally um, that – that is going into the juvenile detention centers and working with the girls. It's uh, Alert, Alert Ministries. Ministries. Yeah. Um, and it's it's those kinds of things that don't seem to be directly connected to human trafficking, but that's part of this greater sense of holistic mm-hmm. prevention because it's these at-risk kids that find themselves being exploited. It's kids that run away from home. That this One of the statistics is that one out of three kids that runs away from home or is kicked out will be exploited within 48 hours of leaving the home. Wow. Mm-hmm. And so how can we get into these kinds of situations and respond to help provide that kind of holistic prevention for the kids that, that have the potential of being exploited? Yeah, um, I, I, I kind of go back to that phrase that I heard years ago, it takes a village. Mm-hmm. And it really, really does in this particular issue. And I think for the church, the church is the prime place for this for, I think, change to take place. The church has the ability to work in just a multitude of areas that really directly affect this issue. You know, Barry and I were always, you know, talking about um, even something as his his mother, who's a grandmother, who she goes down to the Salvation Army and provides books. And she goes down and, and, uh, and she helps to put a reading program together. Those things count. Those things matter because it it does affect it it affects those at risk kids and uh and so i feel like uh the church needs to identify things in their area it, again it's that back to when we were talking about you know just knowing who your server is knowing who the person is that's taking your dry cleaning but it's also knowing the needs of your community i think that a lot of us walk through life um somewhat sleepwalking you know we get very um directed about you know where we're going what we're doing and we forget to look up we forget to look up and look around to the people that god has put in our lives and that's in that's our community and i and the church i feel like is really being called to connect with the community and meet needs that are not being met join us next week for part two of the table podcast Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.